I worked for a wedding photography company for a while, and they were like, we want to make a commercial. And we know that you like play music. We're, we can't get the rights to Queen Somebody to Love, but we'd really like to use Somebody to Love as like the song in our commercial. I was like, you know the opening lyrics of that is each morning i wake up i die a little right <laughs> that's the song that you want to have for your like for wedding wet- photography <laughs> i'm so depressed i think i'm gonna kill myself because i can't find anyone to love me Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong musicians and old friends pick randomly one album a week from Robert Dimery's 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die to dive into, listen to all week, analyze, argue about, and ultimately render our voted-upon opinion of whether or not you really needed to listen to this particular album before you perish this week, for our 4th of July special, happy 4th of July, guys. Woohoo! America. America! Heck yeah. We have chosen a very special album, not randomly selected, which is Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. Looking forward to, to diving into this. You can't have grown up in America, I imagine, without having heard almost all the songs on this record. Yeah, seriously. I had no idea the sheer volume. It plays, yeah, it plays a bit like a greatest hits record. There were a lot of singles up this one. So I'm excited to dive in. Before we do, just wanted to say if you're enjoying the podcast, you join us for the first time. We thrive on word of mouth. So please go ahead and smash that subscribe button, pass this on to a friend, drop us a rating, or shoot us over an email with your comments. After this one, I'm sure there's going to be some opinions flying around on this podcast. The email address is 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. We're excited to hear from you. And before we get into Bruce, I would be remiss if I didn't open up the old mailbag and mention that we do have some listener mail to go back over. And I thought it would amuse you guys. It's a cold read for Adam and Tom here. Yeah, I love it. Some 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 missives from the fans. And these are going back in. What's One of the things that's really cool about hearing from the fans is that they go back into the catalog. So these are episodes that aired quite a while ago that we did quite a while ago. But nice. Okay. One fan writes, I'm not going to blow them up because these are a little bit, a little bit contentious, but uh, it <laughs> might, might offend some, some musicians uh, living and dead. One fan writes, Becker and Fagan would agree with you that a lot of their record album covers suck, especially can't buy a thrill. I feel, oh, valid. yeah. I feel validated by wow. that. Wow. All validated. right. Was All that right. a contentious opinion? Like, who thinks those are good? <laughs> I just like that this guy was like, no, no, I, I know Becker and Fagan. No, you're, and, you're right. Yeah, right. And even they <laughs> the would agree. They phoned shit. it in yeah. on this one. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I think this was back from the Nightfly episode. If you really want to go on a deep dive, this is, I don't know, oh, 50 yeah. episodes ago at this point. Right. Where we were talking about how the Nightfly had a great cover and Steely Dan didn't always hit the mark with their covers, especially on that debut album, even though the catalog is great. Another one I thought was nice, and just because this is this was not a record I'd even ever heard of, but one fan wrote in, I was really excited to see you guys coming in on Martin's Solid Air. That's John Martin, British folk oh, legend. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right, right. And he specifically complimented you, Adam, on having a good ear on Danny Thompson's bass. 
Oh, excellent! Because I, I get, I was second guessing myself on some of the things that he was doing there. Uh, so that's great to hear. Wonderful. So look, we read what you say, we take it into our hearts. Please pass us over your comments, whether you agree with us, whether you think we're dolts. We're open to all of it. But now to the main point at hand. I want to, just in case you've been living in a cave your entire life or somewhere other than the U.S. of A. and have never heard Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, I'm going to play a little snippet of the title track here for everybody just to get us oriented. I'd love us to talk about general album impressions, and as we always do, we're going to throw it around the room first, introduce yourself, and everybody give a quick tweet-length review or encapsulation of this record. Tom. Hi, everybody. This is Tom Monahan coming to you with a public service announcement. Please, please talk to your local Bruce Springsteen about synth abuse. Synth abuse is the number one leading cause of watering down impactful songs. Do yourselves a favor. Make sure your local Bruce knows. Don't OD on the synth. <laughs> da, na, na, na. Exactly. And now you, the more you know. I want to jump right in and talk about that, but let's let's, <laughs> let's bookmark it. Right. Let's go back to it later. <laughs> okay. Thank you okay. for that. Adam, let's kick it to you. Yeah, this is Adam, and I don't know about you, but I kept waiting for uh, The Walk of Life uh, on this ah. album. And then I realized that it's actually, that's by Dire Straits. Uh, that was the vibe I was getting. But anyway, so my actual tweet length review is that Train Tracks, Lumber Mills, Buicks and T-Tops, The Union Hall, Dixie Highway. I feel like this album was written by Borat and that he crammed in as many American-y sounding words into mediocre rock songs. We all drive fast car on the highway, coal mine, apple cobbler, unemployment. Like it just reeked of, so I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> the, the I was going to get chippy this the, one. All right. The tweet yeah. is just cut off in midstream. It's cut off. Yeah. I hit I hit too many characters. Twitter flag, Jay, you're banned for that <laughs> unpatriotic nonsense. Okay, this is Rob here, and I suppose I'm going to take the oppositional side in this particular discussion. My tweet says, In previous incarnations, the boss has proved himself an electric live performer, a dark American folk hero, and a studio album savior of rock and roll. In 1984, on Born in the USA, he makes a play to add pop icon to the list and succeeds handily. (laughs) (laughs) I think numbers and album sales and radio play would agree with you, Rob. So I'll give you a little bit more about where I'm coming from and would love to hear more about where you guys are coming from and then we can get into the background and into the individual songs. I think that I'm glad we, we picked this one. I am... I'll just say right off the top. I'm a Bruce Springsteen fan. I I like him. I'm going to just defend him generally. I'm uh, impressed with his career. I think he is a great American songwriter. 
this is not his best work, not by a long shot. In fact, I'll probably rate it somewhere, I don't know, fourth or fifth or sixth of his output of the last 40 or 50 years. But it does, it was so uncharacteristically successful that you can't sort of wash it from your brain. We're talking about 30 million copies sold. We're in the general territory Jeez. of selling the number of records that Abbey Road sold or Nevermind. I wish Alan was on the podcast because then I was going to boosh him by saying that unfortunately it did sell more than Santana's Supernatural. <laughs> Much to Alan's Rob chagrin. Thomas is wailing and gnashing his teeth. <laughs> But yeah, where's the Bruce Springsteen Rob Thomas collaboration we've all been aching for? <laughs> so it's, I, one, one interesting anecdote that I wanted—I'll just jump right in—that I thought said a lot about why I think Springsteen. He's easy to make fun of, certainly, and I'm all for making fun of people I love. But <laughs> the song "Born in the USA," interesting to note, had many controversial like ups and downs. Chrysler once offered Bruce twelve million dollars to put it in a commercial. He turned them down presumably on the premise that they had, you know, let down the American worker or whatever. But then subsequently, he let two live crew use it for band in the USA (laughs) in 1990. Oh, wow. All right. I thought you were going to say it was used in a Subway commercial in like (laughs) 2000 or something. (laughs) But there was also that whole... Subway! Sorry. There was a whole thing where uh, Reagan was using Born in the USA as part of his like campaign when he was going for, I think for reelection in uh, 84. And then they were like, what's your favorite Bruce Springsteen song? And he's just like, uh, Born to Run. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly had no idea that not only no idea about what Bruce Springsteen was all about, but also what that song was all about. I was going to say, like, did somebody troll him? Did he have some kind of democratic no. operative, you know, on his uh, campaign trail? So uh, let's 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 talk instant impressions, and I, I'll, let's get in. We'll get into yeah, that, sure. the subversiveness of Born in the U- USA, which is one of the best things about it, certainly in my opinion. And did it in fact troll the entire American public? Unclear if that was the original intention or not. But this album was hugely successful. It's what put it's what made Bruce Springsteen a rich man. He had had a career going for. Over 10 years, he was a known figure for over 10 years as a recording artist. He had been touring in bands since he was, you know, 15 or something. He's in his mid 30s at this point. But I guess I just wanted to point out this is fraught for me because A, it's not his best material, certainly. And B, because it happens smack dab in the middle of the 1980s. And there are just Oof. a lot of problems with that era in oh, terms yeah. of production and general cheese factor. And I'm, I'm aware of those problems. I do think. I would like to peel deeper than, and we could absolutely talk about those factors, but I want to peel deeper than that because I think there's something deeper going on. And I think that's what makes it, I think there is a good reason why it was this popular. Let me put it that way. Fair enough. I have a question and it's, it's going to kick off probably a little bit of controversy on this one too. Coming off of not too long ago doing the Kid Rock album, Devil Without a Cause, we really came down hard on Kid Rock for his pimp daddy trailer park grift that he was pulling on people you know try to come across like he was some you know redneck straight from the trailer park why is bruce springsteen also not pulling off a grift as the everyday working man who as far as i can tell never held a job certainly was never working on the highway never went to vietnam 
potentially maybe pulled a Ted Nugent by acting too crazy to uh, get accepted <laughs> when he got his draft number pulled. Like, why do we give Bruce the? Because I also I'm in the camp. Of, I don't come down on Bruce for that. I think I somehow buy it, but I just wonder why we buy it for him and not for somebody like Kid Rock. First of all. I, I got to claim some fake news. He was in a motorcycle accident. That's why when his draft card was pulled, they kicked him out of duty for Vietnam. Well, whether he his concussion played a part in it. Whether he would have subsequently dodged the draft, I mean, it's possible, right? But I, I personally don't think that is the worst offense that can befall a, a human no, being. No, no, no. Absolutely not. I, but... I will say this. I don't believe that he was medically disqualified. I think it was, it was psychologically disqualified from the army, right? Um, it wasn't like, you know, there's medical disqualifications. You have like a quantifiable, verifiable thing. I could take an x-ray and see that this thing happened. But it was like a psychological reason that he got uh, disqualified. So I'm not saying that he faked it. I am saying that like his erratic behavior at the time of his draft number being pulled definitely played a part in him not getting um, uh, f- uh, fair enough yeah yeah fair enough but like i think you're applying i guess my first thought is that you're might be applying a little bit too harsh a standard maybe we're too harsh on kid rock and i, I actually, by the way i do have another connection to kid rock that i want never so let's that oh God, fantastic that. by the way oh, i think God, it's kid rock but i Bruce work let's together. draw a line between saying you're a vietnam vet directly in a song as in, I'm sure yes, talking yes, yes. about and yeah. saying that this is the thing you want to talk about because from what I know about Bruce's background and his sort of level of authenticity here, he was from a post-industrial American working-class town. They literally did have a textile mill that shut down in his hometown and put a bunch of people out of work. And although he devoted his entire life to trying to be a musician, and you're right, not working on a chain gang or anything like that. He was pulling from something that felt a little more real. And he seems like, to me, in his public persona, which has now lasted since you know 1970 till today, still alive today, he does still seem like one of the most down-to-earth, grounded human beings around. So he, at least, I don't know him personally, obviously, but he feels like he lives that persona pretty effectively to me. Sure. I don't disagree with you. I actually, I, I agree with everything you say. I just kind of wondered why. Maybe it's because he doesn't come off as a dick that I'm willing to sort yeah, of give him a little maybe. bit more of that leeway. I, I remember long ago there was that story, like a uh, little inside little vignettes about like famous people and whatnot. And there was one about Bruce Springsteen that talked about how when he went to community college, he was only there for like a year or like a semester. And at the end of the semester, like, all of the kids or like most of the kids in his class got together and like wrote him a letter and was like, we're like, please don't come back. You fucking weirdo. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> like, you're just way Man. too intense for us. We cannot take this. We like, please don't come back. Uh, so good, good point. Because I do buy that. Unlike his public persona of being pretty chill and laid back in these days, certainly he was a taskmaster. And I don't think the nickname, the boss was applied lovingly, at least at first. Ah, right. So that's a factor here. Okay, well, let's. I, I wanted to draw one other comparison since you brought up Kid Rock. I'm glad you did, because as I was mulling this over, thinking about some of my complaints, predicting some of your guys's potential complaints, etc., I thought, why is this so popular? And I thought back to the Kid Rock record that came out about 15 years after this, and in a weird way, they're linked. In that, they are both kind of like pulse checks on what is going on in working-class white America at that time. And 
if you follow my analogy or if you buy this analogy, the premise is that in 1984, working class white America, beer drinking America, so to speak, is feeling a little disenfranchised and left out of the political process, sad about industry leaving, maybe a little nostalgic for their glory days as well as America's glory days. Well, flash forward, <laughs> yeah, flash forward 15 years later, they're angry as hell. And they're not just drinking yeah. those beers, they're throwing those beer bottles at the nearest, <laughs> you know, elitist or whatever. Well, I think it also, um, there is the parallel as well that Kid Rock was trying to fit his persona into the sound of the day. And I that is why I think that slathering and synth gets maybe a little bit grating to me is that it really is trying to take the classic Bruce sound and modify it for the 80s. And in my opinion, take the worst part of the 80s sound and make that the sort of amplify it, amplify it. it. And in honestly, in some cases, have it be as loud in the mix as the vocals. (laughs) So you're not, you're not wrong exactly, but I think I take issue with it and I want to talk about it via the individual songs. And I feel like I even tried to pick songs, maybe to your point, you can get it from any of the songs, but I think this is some of the more tasteful use of synth in in 80s rock and roll that you're going to hear. If you listen to the 100 top hits of the 80s or something, I think you're going to hear much and judge it upon that relative scale. I think this is some of the more reserved use of synthesizer power. But it's not negating your overall point, which is that he's sort of falling victim to just going with the flow of the day. Yeah, reserved. <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll 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 talk about it on some of the individual songs. I mean, compared to '80s new wave, compared even I, you could argue compared even to stuff like the Police, Synchronicity, which we went over. I think it. I think the tones are a little more muted in and of themselves and support the song in a better way, as opposed to just coming in and interrupting everything. Not everything in the arrangement is about synth. I don't know it's very. It just, they, the tones are very cutting for me. They they tended to go on the high pitchy synth side which is my least favorite kind of synth is the high pitchy synth but that in all honesty that's not my biggest problem with the album it's it's an easy target but my biggest problem with many of the songs on this album is that so many of them are centered around one melodic motif that is carried throughout the entire song in the melody all of the instruments are accenting it, and there's not even when the chord changes, the motif changes with the chords, and it's so constant throughout the song that I just get tired of it by the end of the song. I can't take it. Like Darlington County is a, I think a perfect version of that where they sort of have even the bass is kind of hitting the melody, and. It just, by the end of the song, I'm so tired of it. I'm like, just give me something different. You came up with one melodic motif and you're hammering it to death. And then the next song starts with a half-beat snare drum. Crack! Crack! Yeah. With delay on it. Yeah. Like five five different songs start like that. I think that's a reasonable criticism. I would also say that some of that is, it's partially what pop music is and it's partially a product of how they made this. So let's talk a little bit about the making and then let's get into the individual sure. songs. So... I find Bruce's story particularly interesting. I should say, maybe if you're if you have been listening to the podcast, you might know that I'm a big fan of musicians' memoirs. And Bruce published a pretty successful one a few years back. And I got and I've read was tons it, of them. Was it titled Shanana Jala Nana Jala? 
sorry. <laughs> one of the actual choruses on this album. That would be a great title for an album, by the way. <laughs> for, yeah, for a book by Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> I'd read that book. I, I assume the premise of that uh, that cut is that it's inappropriate to have a wordless chorus of a hot, of a hit song. Is that right? <laughs> I disagree <Yes>. wholeheartedly, <laughs> and can cite many great song examples. Are you going to give me Brown Eyed Girl? <laughs> Brown Eyed Girls. Uh, I was going to say Lithium by Nirvana. I'll have to yeah. think of a few more. I'll let you know as they come. Yeah. I don't inherently have a problem with that. And I think part of what he's doing, you're allowed to not like it, of course, but part of what he's doing is trying to harken back to this kind of 50s, early 60s garage rock 50, thing. Yeah, yeah where right, that was right. uh, more acceptable. Whether he's successful, you know, you can argue that, whether you like it, et cetera. But okay, the making of, right? So, you know, like I said, Bruce was playing in bands and having moderate success, more success, say, than the people on this call had. Or, Adam, you had some success, I suppose. But anyway, he was touring <laughs> with bands before before he got a record contract, before the E Street Band came together, all this stuff. And, in fact, when he got his first record contract, he got it as a solo artist, like, for his acoustic sort of folky songs where he was performing. And so he was definitely very, very dedicated at just being an artist and probably was an extreme weirdo in that sense. He got the record contract and ended up trying to pull together a band. And that's and on that first record, which is, in my opinion, excellent. One, he's I think he's a very different songwriter. But two, he starts to pull together some of the people in the E Street band, but not the, not the full compliment. Max Weinberg's not on that record, for instance. Anyway, then he goes on. He has another... 10 years of making some more records of touring incessantly. He was always known as this road dog, right? This, the band was known as the the best band and they would go to your town and they would rock for three hours and all those kind of cliche stories, or he would show up at some bar in New Jersey and sit in with the band, which really meant he took over for the next four hours, whatever it was. (laughs) But you know, they had a kick in live show. Like that was kind of where a lot of the mystique was built uh, in the seventies of Bruce. And well, I think, both Rob and I can attest to that. We did see Bruce live in Philly, and it was a killer show. And hard working does not even begin to describe the uh, the amount of energy and just raw like magnetism that was happening on that stage. It was it was intense. It's it's a great point, and that was a long time ago now, Tom. And that shaped it's it's definitely shaping my opinion here. So I'm glad we're talking about it because yeah, he was mesmerizing in a true use of that word, and I was. I liked him going into that show, and I think you kind of did too, Tom, but we were both sort of knocked down by how... Was this in 2000s or Yeah, 90s maybe 2002, or when... 2000, maybe 2000. Okay. It was, yeah. he was just, it was in Philly, I think, or in, not, not it was Jersey. In Philly. But no, it was, it was like, Spectrum. He, yeah, he was doing like oh, a nine-night wow. run yeah. at the Spectrum or something Jesus. like that. Jesus, yeah, right. In, yeah, the late 90s, early 2000s. Anyway, and yeah, he... He holds the crowd in the palm of his hand. And I think that is a skill that he and the band honed over time uh, very well. So anyway, the point is, flash forward to Bruce is in his early to mid-30s in the 80s. He's been touring excessively for so long. He's tired. He starts. He's dealing with some deep depression, some kind of midlife crisis stuff. He doesn't know what he wants to do. He doesn't want to keep doing the same thing. He feels like the band maybe has reached his end point. But it's also a time, partially maybe because he's so depressed and anxious, that he's very prolific. So he ends up cutting like 80 to 100 songs as acoustic sort of demos on his own, starting around two, two years before this album comes out. 
Jesus. And All right. they tried to bring the band in to adapt them. And it's called, they were called the Electric Nebraska uh, Sessions. And some of those are the cuts we got eventually coming out on Born in the USA. But basically, this is my way of saying everything sort of started as these acoustic guitar demos coming from, you know, let's say a relatively actual dark place in Bruce's life. Because the stuff with the band wasn't really working out, Bruce took a little bit of a turn, He and he decided to release a solo album called Nebraska, which was really just those demos turned in, you know, the demo, what was going to be demos turned into actual releases. And that one comes off kind of like a, this dark folk record. Um, it's a great record in my opinion, but the band had already worked on some of the songs, right? I think this is relevant because it was, it was just a weird, it was a weird time for him where he really didn't know where to go or what to do next. And so in this story, what, what you're telling me, this, this makes it feel less pandering to me. So when I listened to this, didn't necessarily put myself in 1984, but instead thinking about modern country where the formula is just name things. There's a fence, there's a pickup truck, and you put a chorus to it, and that's your song, right? Yeah. feels very pandering to blue cla- uh, yeah, uh, uh, blue-collar workers and that type of stuff. I got that feeling listening to this, but as you're telling me this, I guess I'm, I'm going to start re- uh, Re-examining my my uh, previous. Well, I I think uh, that's its I think that's its bad side. I think the schlockiness and the pandering, or at least that interpretation of it, is a reasonable place to take it for the kind of bad. I think when it works, in my mind, it's sort of pure pop perfection, and in its low points, it's that pandering thing. But I also think the context is super important, not just the context in Bruce's life, but also the context in where music was at the time. I do think he kind of set the tropes down a little bit not not completely but a little bit and a lot of the stuff that gets made fun of when people make fun of bruce springsteen right there's a there's a pretty easy way you know <laughs> to to get to get to a making fun of bruce springsteen thing oh taking my girl down to the quarry and oh big surprise her dad's not a fan and we jump on the back of my motorcycle <laughs> it's like you know who i'm talking about without me mentioning the name but i think you can call that you can choose to decide that that's a criticism of him and his sort of one noteness, or you can say the only way you can even make fun of somebody is if they've left an indelible mark on the culture already, right? So I just I'm kind of choosing to interpret it that way. Point point of my story is coming into this, I think, and this this somewhat supports some of your guys's points, which is he had just delivered to his record company the least poppy least sellable, least marketable version of Bruce Springsteen in the album Nebraska, which was just him on an acoustic guitar, you know, some Tom Waits backups, talking just about the dark side of America, basically, and wasn't really selling well. He didn't he didn't want to go on tour to promote it, none of that. And the record company is pressuring him to make a pop album. And this is so he, I think he kind of took that in a somewhat spiteful way and said, oh, you want a pop album? Let me, I'll show I'll you. Give you I'll give you a goddamn. Sh- <laughs> <laughs> the most depressing, uh, yeah. The Sorry, the one thing I wanted to get back to about why the arrangements aren't maybe as complex as they could be, because I do think it's a very qualified band. But Bruce's recording aesthetic at this point, and I think it's partly because he wanted to try something different. Again, they had been road dogs. They'd worked a whole bunch of songs out in the 70s on stage night after night to the point where when he got into the studio for his other huge record, his kind of big breakthrough, Born to Run, they spent a year just like pouring over how to do overdubs and all this kind of stuff. Well, flash forward 10 years, he takes the complete opposite approach. Most of the takes 
that we're hearing on this record are like 95% to 100% live, including the vocals. And most of them are done in the first five takes of the band playing through the song and hitting record. So he really purposely, he liked that aesthetic of like trying to catch the band just learning the song. That's kind of what he was going for there. So I think that's I think that's context, but I also think you can shit on it for saying the arrangements aren't that complex. Yeah, there's no counter melodies. And I really needed counter melodies to, to you know, if you're going to have a musical motif that's going to go through the entire song, it works because of what it's counterbalanced against with the counter melodies. And they weren't there. And yeah, those are the hard ones to come up with. You, you come up <laughs> with your, your initial thing. You're like, hey, I got this thing. You're like, that's cool. This is why you work it is to get the thing that provides the balance to it. It's the, to the chocolate to the peanut butter, you know? Yeah, I suppose so. I've never exactly thought, I mean... You, another way to interpret this from the standpoint of his career, though, would be that he's never been a melodic master. Like, all the stuff I like about him, it's not really melody that is what's driving it. Mm-hmm. And in that context, these these are some of the better melodies that I think he's he's crafted. And, you know, that thus they yielded the biggest sales, perhaps. But he's more about the content of the songs. So I'm sure you have plenty of complaints about the content of the songs as well. But, like, I think that I think probably that's what he's thinking is the meat of this. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I got I got I got a real serious complaint about the content of one of the songs, but uh, not born in the USA because I I actually like the lyrics of this song are fantastic, really really great lyrics. Okay, so let's let's go ahead and transition to talking about the title track and the first track on the album, a monster hit that Tom just mentioned, "Born in the USA." Let's play another snippet of that. Come back home to the I'll say this. Born in the USA to me is a great example of a kind of pull back the curtain power of the arrangement in song production. One of the things that's always stuck out to me about this song, we're going to talk about the lyrics shortly, is that Bruce Springsteen much later in his life on a box set released that original kind of acoustic demo of the song, his original vision for the song. And it's recognizable clearly as the same song, but it casts what he's saying in sort of a completely different light. It's in a minor key versus a major key. So let's play a snippet of that just to give you a sense, because I think for listeners, sometimes it's a little mystical how songs go from the writing stage to the production stage. And this is an interesting peek behind the curtain, in my opinion, of all the things you can do after, technically, after you wrote the song. Here's the original demo of Born in the USA. Come back on the refineries. Iron Man says, son, if it was up to me, I'd go down to see the yeah. says, Son, don't you understand? Born in the USA. Born in the USA. Yeah, it's very, not doomy, but yeah. All right, let's talk about the song, now that we've listened to both those versions, let's talk about the song Born in the USA. Tom, you sounded like you wanted to say something. I hate the synth in this song so much, and I know that 
it's probably part of the reason why it was popular. I understand that it, it comes out very beginning. It sets the tone for the song. And then it doesn't stop playing the same thing <laughs> for, the entire for the entire four minutes and 38 seconds of the song. Even when like the drums kind of start breaking and like everybody's sort of doing something else, the synth is just Still plowing going. through, just blinders on the entire time. And maybe it's just going back to like, you know, going to the fireworks on the 4th of July in Rockford Park and like hearing this song played 18 <laughs> times over the fucking loudspeakers oh yes. along with that uh, Neil Diamond song they're coming, coming to, to America <laughs> <laughs> the, the, hearing the Nebraska demo version of it definitely reignited my love for the song I just I wish that the arrangement wasn't so cloying it just it's a bit much but again I, I understand that that's probably why it was a hit but it it sucks a little bit of the life out of it for me at this point in my life. Couple in- a couple things I want to say, and then I want to hear Adam's take. So, yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard this song too many times. I think that's fair. It's been played incessantly at all those events you just mentioned and just on the radio generally. But why is the arrangement the way it is? Well, it might surprise you to know this is a 100% live take that we're listening to, including the vocals. And it is take two of them with the band. Wow. So they are struggling to understand what to play. And here's a fun little tidbit. You can actually hear Max Weinberg, the drummer in the E Street Band, stop the song at the wrong time. And then Bruce, just wanting to keep it rolling, he counts them back in and they finish it out. And that's what they printed. That explains the end of the song there. Yeah. It's, listen, for that context, great. Great performance, guys. Really good. I probably would have just preferred if you workshopped it a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, you know, they have since then on the road for 35 years, presumably. Yeah, yeah. I don't even, did they play Born in the USA? When no, we saw I don't know. They didn't okay, play it yeah. at our show, no. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, the the other thing that must be mentioned, right, in case you're not a lyrics listener, as we some folks on this podcast say they're not sometimes, is the sheer subversiveness of the song, that it comes out of the yeah. box sounding like this patriotic anthem, and that is certainly how it was interpreted and continues to be interpreted by a lot of people. But in fact, it's about the mistreatment of Vietnam vets coming back to America and getting a shit deal. Yeah, man, that's heavy. Well, and also about the exploitation of the underclass that... He got into some trouble, and so they and shipped so they him off more. to Vietnam, yep, basically. Yep. I remember my dad telling a story about how when he was young, a very young police officer in Wilmington, they would go to the draft office, and guys who were like in line to get their, you know, basically like your, your numbers pulled, they would go there and be like, hey, if you like come and go into the police academy, like you won't be drafted. You don't have to go to war. And he was like, nobody ever took it. <laughs> they were like, Whoa. yeah, you know what? I think I'd rather go to this jungle and get <laughs> shot at for a couple of months as opposed to being a cop. Like, That's intense. Yeah. This is the first time in, in my life that I've ever actually listened to the lyrics. This song was just omnipresent, as Tom said, at every 4th of July or barbecue and it's so omnipresent that I kind of shut it off. And so this was the first time I actually listened to the lyrics. Yeah, and it's heavy, man. There was a uh, a note. There's this website called Genius.com that gives you the lyrics and some interpretations of it. And one of the notes was that the despair is absolute, which is also how I felt listening to the song. So it was a nice balance between <laughs> the lyrics and my experience. To me, even though it's played out, I, the subversiveness of getting this into a such a major pop song, getting it on Reagan's campaign, 
super boosh. It's a right? super boosh. <laughs> like that. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Totally. And that's that's apart from the fact that we're talking it's a two chord song made into a mega Yo, hit. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, with this political statement layered in that you would think would be obvious if you just took a moment to like sanity check this if you're in Reagan's campaign or I'm sure it's been used by countless politicians incorrectly, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I will relate a story here. I worked for a wedding photography company for a while, and they were like, we want to make a commercial. And we know that you like play music. We're, we can't get the rights to Queen Somebody to Love, but we'd really like to use Somebody to Love as like the song in our commercial. I was like, you know the opening lyrics to that is, each morning I wake up, I die a little, right? <laughs> like, that's the song that you want to have for your like for wedding wed- photography. <laughs> Woo! Each, I'm so depressed, I think I'm going to kill myself because I can't find anyone to love me. <laughs> I thought, that's hilarious. I, for some reason, I thought, I always heard that there's the Beach Boys song, God Only Knows, and I've heard of people trying to wanting to use that as their first dance song or the song at their wedding. It's like yeah. the first lyric is, I may not always love you. Love you, <laughs> <Yes>. right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> people don't listen to lyrics. Apparently they not. They don't. Apparently well, yeah. not. You yeah. know, even when it might be important to do so. Yeah, the other thing I liked, a little tidbit about this tune, is that it started... At, original title was died in vietnam so sometimes i just like to replace in my head him singing out died in vietnam <laughs> would have been a little more on the nose then yeah probably would have sold a little less <laughs> just a few just yeah. a couple yeah so the last thing we got to mention about this tune is the snare drum sound the gun crack <sighs> yeah faulty reverb, hyper delay hyper yeah. delay yeah. whatever it is Oof. that is became kind of a staple of 80s production it's this record was produced by a guy called Bob Clear Mountain, and I've heard stories of people demanding that drum sound. I've heard people going, "Give me anything but that sound! Like stay away from that sound." It is a polarizing snare drum sound. Yes. So I wonder. Max Weinberg plays left hand paintbrush style. That's right, under or yeah. underhand style, right? Yeah. So with his, I don't know if he does it with both hands. I think he just does it with his left hand paintbrush style. But that snare hit sounds like you got to be coming from the shoulder. Like I wonder if he went to like traditional grip for that, just to get that like right. rim shot blast on that on that snare. That's an interesting question. I wouldn't think you would have to though if you were a skilled enough drummer. Probably. I mean, I, I'm terrible at the drums, which is why I would think that you would need to go from the shoulder. He's probably still just doing it off on the wrist. But here's yeah. just because now we're talking a little bit about Max Weinberg and because we're not going to get to mention it in one of the songs we chose. So Max Weinberg, also famous for going on and being in Conan O'Brien's band. And our generation loved the original Conan late night show in the 90s and watched the heck out oh, of that. Yeah. Also present on this album as a background vocalist, La Bamba of in the year 2000 fame. Really? Oh, I love that. I love that bit. That was a great bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Labamba was he a, a rhythm guitar player, if I recall? Or was he a no, horn player? No, he's a horn player, trumpet player, I think. Okay, yeah. okay, okay, right, right. But I think he just sings background on a couple tunes that we didn't put on the list. Cover Me, maybe. But he's in the credits, yeah. By the way, okay. Cover Me it's not quite my favorite song on the album, but I really like Cover Me. I thought that my synth complaints aside, like Cover Me is exactly what I loved about Bruce Springsteen. And I was wondering why it was always the song on the album that I really gravitated towards. And I was like, oh, there's no synth on it. (laughs) It's the most rock and roll. Yeah, It is definitely the most rock and roll. Yeah. 
maybe just a quick rundown. This one plays like a greatest hits record. There were seven top ten signal singles Jesus, here. Released, that's great. Yeah, released over the course of one and a half years, including Dancing in the Dark, Cover Me, Born in the USA, of course, I'm on Fire, Glory Days, I'm Going Down, and My Hometown, which came out a good year and a half after the record came out. So this that's just stayed nuts. out there in the public year, and that's what sold so many damn copies. Yeah. Okay. Let's. Oh, the, the the anecdote about Cover Me, by the way, Tom, is that it was originally written for Donna Summer. So it was going to be a disco <laughs> yeah. song, and then they yeah. rocked it up. So they kind of moved away from that, as opposed to taking maybe a rock or a folk song and then popping and it up. Synthing it up, yeah. Synthing it up, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's let's move it right along to the next song on the list. Darlington County. Let's play a snippet of that bad boy. I'll let you take it, Adam. Just sing Glory Days over top of this, and (laughs) I think it's the same song. This one felt super pandering to me. He's in the union, rock and roll, T-tops. I don't know. It just felt a little corny and a little too aimed at uh, kind of the shtick of, you know, hey, all you blue-collar workers, I wrote a song for you. I just, I don't know. That was my initial take. I agree that it's the low point. Or that's that's why I put it on this list. I think it's I think of it as the low point. There are a couple arguments for different low points, perhaps, but it's definitely pandering to like those simplistic beer drinking America that we talked about. They're boring guitar licks, boring stories. Although I have to admit that probably most of the listeners have done stuff like they're talking about, which is to say getting drunk out of state with your friends, chasing girls, and ending right. up arrested. <laughs> yeah. So it really is. It's a universal tune. I, I, I could see Bruce having done that, too. Being like, I'm striking out with the girls in New York, so let's come down to Rednecksville and see if we can impress them with our car. And, you know, uh, I just, I hated the arrangement of the song. It, this is the one that just dragged so bad for me. This is not my low point. My low point is actually working on the highway. I yeah, that's, my, that that's my other, it, <laughs> that's it's funny. a fight between that's those rough. two. They're both pretty bad. I agree. Yeah. But yeah, this is this is the one again. I, I said it earlier where it needed some kind of counter melody to the just the fact that like everything is hitting that da na 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 for the entire song. It's there and everything does that, and it's not strong enough to for that to carry through. Well, I agree in this case because my general argument would be something about the song has to be well thought out. I'm okay if it's only one element, for instance, the songwriting. But in this case, you have a dashed-off bit of songwriting combined with a dashed-off arrangement, this kind of in-the-garage-fucking-around vibe with the band. You know what I mean? It just doesn't... Nothing about it feels complex in any way, shape, or form or have any depth, and so doesn't work. There was an especially egregious moment starting at 134 where, lyrically, he says, Hey, girl, standing on the corner, 
Today's your lucky day for sure. All right. <laughs> he throws in all right at the end because the next line ends in the word night. But like he couldn't have found another way to, to get an it word in there instead of saying for sure. All right. I mean, there's a hundred <laughs> words that rhyme with that. Fight, right, quite, blight, or like this song, shite. <laughs> yeah you had a hundred songs to choose from you could have you could have put this on the yeah or maybe maybe just ri- maybe write like 60 of them and spend a little bit more time on some lyrical content that'd be another, option. That'd be another yeah. option for sure all right this one's embarrassing uh, and i've always found it odd the, you know the ordering <laughs> this one's embarrassing no it is sorry it, it is yeah because i'm a i'm a springsteen fan I, I do like a lot of what he does but i'm not a fan of blind allegiance to anybody certainly He's made a lot of crap, too, right? Part of that's just him having been around for so damn long. Uh, and this is an example of that. But I let's talk about the album ordering for a second. Starting with Born in the USA, pretty clear, pretty clear decision there. Like, bravo. I don't know. You know, no need, no need to bury that one deep on the record. He closes right. it strong with some other big pop hits. But kind of front-loading Darlington County and working on the highway, it seems bizarre to me. He must oh, have known. Oh, those are back-to-back. Yeah, he There's must have known they weren't that strong. He just wanted to get him out of the way with maybe <laughs> and early then he's on gonna, halfway through and well, but to be fair, if you look at Born in the USA, Cover Me, Downbound Train, and I'm on Fire, I'd still listen to that side of the album, even though it has Darlington County and Working on the Highway sandwiched in between those songs because the rest of them are pretty damn good songs. Right. I, I again, as much as Born in the USA has been killed for me. I cannot say that's a bad song, and that especially in 1984, I probably would listen to the shit out of that song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, co- yeah. Context is important because this might have felt like a non-synth oasis to the synthy new wave of tainted love, and yeah, I don't, I, what else was going on back then? When doves cry, I don't know. Right. First of all, how dare you bring up? <laughs> <laughs> I listened to When Doves Cry the other day. That song is awesome because like there's almost no tonal elements in it and you can still feel what the chord changes are. It's 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 weird. Anyway. Oh, um, that's interesting. But was uh was this before Tears for Fears? Or was Tears for Fears kind of like right in this era? Because I always liked the way that Tears for Fears used synth. I'm not sure what the first Tears for Fears records were. It feels like they should have been after this, but I'm definitely not sure. Okay, let's keep it rolling along, guys. Let's not turn this into another two-hour debacle. We're going to move right on to I'm on Fire. Let's play a snippet of that. I'm just going to read the lyrics to I'm on fire for a second. Are you going to do a Bruce Springsteen voice? I'm not going to do a Bruce Springsteen <laughs> okay. voice. Think about this from the standpoint of a child molesting serial killer. 
Hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Did he go away and leave you all alone? I got a bad desire. Oh, I'm on fire. Tell me now, baby, is he good to you? And can he do to you the things that I do? Oh, no, I can take you higher. Oh, I'm on fire. That's the creepiest damn lyrics. I I was genuinely disturbed when I first realized what he was saying. And I understand that baby is, he's in the music video, he's fantasizing about a woman, age appropriate woman. But it really seemed like, you know, you're like a little girl knocking on the screen door and you're like, hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Like, (laughs) at least he didn't throw an actual age in there. I feel like, yeah, little girl has not aged well as flirty yeah. talk but it certainly used to be a normal thing to yeah do. There, there's beatles tunes that verge on creepy if you sure uh, yeah but they also all were like banging 16 year olds at the time too so <laughs> this, you know maybe it was the appropriate term this is i think sort of related to the video for this where he's like a hunky mechanic i, I believe who's gonna fix you know fix her car but <laughs> one, of, one of the things that was funny about researching this was the idea that bruce in 1984 is considered muscular like you know what i mean i gotta go look this up in today's parlance he just looks like a dad you know of any sort just wearing a headband like that's it well that's you know the the annie Leibowitz photo for the cover of his of his butt like i think that was meant to be kind of like a look at this guy's ass type of thing you know like that's selling the sex yeah yeah it's It's like now we now we've seen dwayne johnson you know it just doesn't work anymore so Okay, well, I'll jump in. I, I do like the song. I don't think the lyrics are great, but I like the arrangement of this one a lot. It's just a, it's a simple arrangement. It's just, yeah. it's just three people. It's drum, synth, and guitar. I really like the guitar part a lot. It kind of makes it stand out from the rest of the record. To me, this is a great example of tasteful synth in the context of, the, of 80s pop, to be fair. Kind of gives me a Johnny Cash vibe just a little bit. Uh, I dig it. I thought, the, I thought the mix was nice as well. I, I think I'd only ever heard this again coming through some doctor's office or dentist office radio and then i put headphones on i was like oh this is actually quite a departure from kind of full steam ahead you know the title track just kind of all on your face this was very nuanced which which i appreciated i think that i like this song a lot too and as much as i am reading the lyrics in the creepiest way possible again i (laughs) tend to give bruce the benefit of the doubt so i will uh, you know i'll say that that's not what he was going for i think this particular arrangement and delivery style points to later era Bruce in a way that most of the other stuff on this album I don't necessarily think points towards the sound of later era Bruce. You get like Streets of Philadelphia vibe and stuff like that. I agree. Like, and, I, and I dig that stuff. I dig his soft delivery. I also dig his shout delivery, but I dig his soft delivery a lot. Also, this has always had one of my favorite Bruce lines in it that's just so so out of the blue intense, which is sometimes it's like someone took a knife, baby, edgy and dull <laughs> and cut a six inch valley through the middle of my skull. Yeah, that's provocative. <laughs> yes, but great it all, pickup line. Yeah, but it, it's also what a crazy person says. It's what a guy with schizophrenia in this mental I'm institution cut my says. Fingers off for you. It's like I'm on what? fire. It feels like somebody cut a six inch gash in my skull. Uh, I wake up and my bed sheets are soaking wet. I yeah. can't help it. I'm on fire. I'm thinking about this little girl. <laughs> So another somebody needs to record a metal version with these lyrics <laughs> and see how it comes out. I was like, oh shit, that's awesome. Yeah. This is this is more of a Phil note. Phil's not with us, but the guitar is going through an echo plex on this one, which I, I ah, always gets Phil nice. excited, I feel. And yeah. then and one more tidbit I found was that this was one of the songs that got pulled from radio rotation after 9-11. 
just not funny or anything, but I think it's interesting to note that like radio stations were scrambling immediately to compile a list of songs that they should not play. And this was, and they're like rage against the machine, entire catalog. All right, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Let's play some more kid rock guys. Uh, that's, that's the kind of American anger we can accept. Yeah, because this song, I'm on fire. They were like, anything yeah, I, that has anything what? to do like, what about Jimi Hendrix? Let me stand next to your fire. You know? Maybe they just Damn. did a control F of all the songs that had fire in them. I'm not sure. No, that's wild. That was a weird time. It was a weird time. Okay, moving right along to an upbeat number that has nothing to do with 9-11. Dancing in the Dark. <laughs> you cannot possibly not have heard this song, but we're going to play a little snippet of it right now. I don't have a lot to say on this one. The one note I had, well, A, like you said, Rob, we've all heard it. I kind of can't stand it. I'm trying not to look through that lens of oversaturation, but man, this sax outro sucks. God, this is why I hate sax in rock and roll. Like, this is the embodiment of why saxophone and rock do not mix. It's like chairs and rock and roll concerts don't mix. Sax and rock and roll also do not mix. I think uh, Little Richard would have something to say about that, but <laughs> yeah, I totally but, uh, disagree with that sentiment, yeah, of course. Yeah, right. But <laughs> but I mean, I'm not defending the sax solo here. But this is listen, it's not a rock record; it's a pop record, and I think that's pretty expressly evident on every single track. So we got to talk about it in the context that it that it's in, and it was hugely successful as a pop record. And pop has its failings, but I maybe I'll just out myself and say that I am a fan of pop generally. You got to take it on its own on reality's terms here. It's not intending. It's not born to run. It's not a rock record. I think the only issue that I really have with this song is that there was the definitive version of it that was done later. And I joked about this on the text string, but I was not joking. The my dick version of this song, dancing (laughs) in my dick, is in my head the canon version of this song now, and I cannot unhear it every time i listen to this song i cannot unhear the my dick version of it and if listeners if you have a chance after you're done listening to us of course go look up in Bandcamp. is it Bandcamp? my dick band.bandcamp.com <laughs> it's the only plug we're gonna do this free plug yes. out there for the band my dick it's 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 the most juvenile hilarity that you can imagine but Go listen to it. It's pretty damn good. They take your like favorite 30 songs from the last 25 years and replace just about every word with my dick. <laughs> it is pretty great. I agree. It's, it's pretty great. The um, definitive version. The one that always Tom. sticks That's out awesome. from that record to me, though, Tom, is the My Dick in Heaven, Eric Clapton. Oh, Eric Clapton. <laughs> Would oh you know my, my dick if oh my you saw God. my dick in heaven? <laughs> yeah, it's 
pretty yeah, good. it's pretty it's, it's pretty crap. fantastic. So so the interesting thing about this one, this was his biggest. This was actually the biggest and most successful single off the record, and Bruce's biggest hit ever. In fact, I believe it was only kept out of the number one slot by aforementioned When Doves Cry. I want to say it was it the first right single too, the same right? Time. I believe it was the first single. Yes, and smart move, smart move. What's funny? I just like these these stories where the record is basically done, and his manager listens to it and goes, "Hey, man, um, it's good, but uh, there's no hits. Can you like write some <laughs> more songs? Like you got to write a hit, man. Like I mean, I'm not gonna like, put one out without a hit, right?" <laughs> So Bruce goes off that night, writes a song, basically complaining about writing as like an FU, <laughs> and then they record it, you know, over the next couple of days. And this. Wow. I, I, first of all, this song is pop perfection. It's great. I love the bridge of this song. It's super tasteful. You know, basically, the verse is like a G to an E minor, and then the chorus, the chorus chords start D to a C. And then for the bridge, they just flip those. They just invert them. E minor to G, C to D. And so it like maintains that sense of the rest of the song, but it's clearly different. And it, it mixes it up enough without being jarring as a change. I think it's, it's, it's masterfully done. I'm totally going to steal that um, for some bridge in the future. Uh, so good work, Bruce. Good work on that one. I agree. I, Pop Perfection is what I wrote down also. I, this is my go-to karaoke song. Tom, I'm sure, already knows, having been drunk with me at karaoke many a time. <laughs> no way! It's a per- Dude, all right. It's a perfect... I gotta I, come to karaoke. It's a perfect pop song, man. I think... I th- I love the lyrics. I also think this song is subtly subversive. I've always read it to be about casual sex, possibly leading to a real relationship, which I think is a... You know, he's he's talking and dancing in the dark is certainly a metaphor for sex, right? Or an analogy for sure. sex or something. So getting that across and making that super popular in kind of mainstream square America to me is also has that little subversive edge to it. But yeah. Again, he slipped it he slipped this one to all of the uh the Bible belt and they were all dancing to it. <laughs> no. Listen, I'm I'm as basic as they come with what I'm about to say, but I was that kid watching MTV, watching him dance with Courtney Cox. This was my entryway into This is the Courtney Cox video. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And hearing him say, that, you know, they say you gotta stay hungry. Hey, baby, I'm just about starving tonight. Like, I was into that. I was pantomiming that in the mirror when I was a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the line, you can't start a fire without a spark. Again, it, it seems like, uh, ho-hum. Works really, really well in this song. Cool. So we all agree Bruce is great and there's no problems. All right. <laughs> last track on the record and last track on our list is My Hometown. Let's play a snippet of that. I was eight years old and running with the dime in my hand To the bus stop to pick up a paper from my Sit on his lap, that big old Buick steers. We drove through town, tassel my hair, say something, good look around. This is your hometown. This is your hometown. This is your hometown. This is your Adam, what do you think, buddy? 
this was actually my favorite song on the album, believe it or not. Really? Uh, I thought he sounds beautiful on this track. I feel like a lot of the rest of the album, he's doing a bit, you know, he's doing maybe the, the louder singing or something, but this one, it feels like he really relaxed and just got into it. And I just love the sound of his voice. I honestly would have preferred if it was just him and an acoustic guitar. And that's it. I feel like the synth pad, we've talked about the synth in this episode. It's a little corny because it's the synth horns. And it kind of takes away from it. Uh, And I dug the lyrics too, you know, as a dad, you know, just listening to the story. I actually felt something as he was telling the story. So this was actually my favorite track on the album that story about the murder that happens in verse two yes exactly <laughs> i was i was taken aback by that because i've heard this song a million times and i was like wait did he say a shotgun blast was there a shotgun blast? A gun in the gun in the seat Holy the, oh shit. okay bruce really well, it, was, it was a real story about a hate crime that happened you know i think the town over from his or something i, I, I oh no way yeah he's writing about his real experience in this particular case okay and it's intended to be a little bit of a bookend to Born in the USA, coming at the end of the album, whereas Born in the USA comes at the beginning. I I also like Murdered it a lot. in the USA. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're born at the start and you die at the end, yeah. Well, listen, I think that this is... Yeah, it starts bad and it ends bad. This, <laughs> this is like... The whole thing, and maybe Bruce's whole brand, is like earnestness porn. And I'm just, I'm just sort of in for that. I'll just be honest. I like earnestness. I, I buy it. I buy him. You know, I, I get why you might debate that or something, or why you might not like that. But to me, this song sounds more like his, even more like his future. Tom, you meant said that "I'm on Fire" sounded like Streets of Philadelphia or stuff that goes to Tom Joad or stuff that came later. To me, this is that connection of what he really wants to be singing about uh, with consistency, and it also feels connected to those songs on Nebraska too. And I'm about to veer into some sentimentality or maybe even cliche, but like I'm someone who feels a lot of conflicted I think we all must feel conflicted feelings about our hometown. I mean that's a universal feeling, right? The memories right. you have there both good and bad, doing this sincere accounting of the past, themes of being both proud and ashamed of where you come from. I know that in my life I've felt that really deeply and I think it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. So, I like this tune. I think the synth again is not overly intrusive. But I'm glad they put an acoustic guitar on it. It feels like it breaks from the pop kind of mold of this. It breaks enough from the pop mold of the rest of the productions to make it stand out to me. And yet it was also a hit song. So my my note on this is uh Bruce Cooker Springsteen over here. <laughs> which by the way, Jack and Diane and Pink Houses came out before Born in the USA, which I will take this as a boosh of like, uh, hey, you know, you want to talk about hometown Americana stuff? I can I can do it twenty times better than you there, uh, Johnny Cougar. <laughs> but this this one never really did it for me. I think it, part of it is just like not enough melodic dynamics for me, so it's a little bit of a sleeper. I don't I don't dislike it, but I've, it's not one that I would ever sort of be like, I'm going to seek this song out to listen to it. Um, I don't in the context of an album or the context of a playlist, I don't mind it at all. But my other note on here, and this is something that is fitting for probably a lot of Bruce's work. He talks about high school a lot, like a lot, a lot. And I wonder, you know, a lot of um, musicians, they get famous and then the subject matter of what they write about 
kind of evolves with their lifestyle a little bit. And Bruce certainly never did that. He's still writing the like, I'm 22 years old, I'm four years out of high school, and I haven't done anything with my life yet, and I'm real fucking bummed about it type of songs now 15 years later. And I I don't know if I'm saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just something that I guess I hadn't really thought about before when I, I hadn't really done a dive to deconstruct the lyrics of Bruce Springsteen to try to figure out what his themes are and stuff like that. But his themes stay pretty consistent throughout the entirety of his uh, of his career and don't necessarily evolve with him as a uh, as a person, you know, whose lifestyle changes and whose experiences are changing. And I'm not saying that again, not saying that with any kind of value judgment on it. Yeah, that's a it's an interesting topic to talk about, because I don't know what the right most artistic choice is there. Is it to understand yourself early? and lock into something. And by the way, I don't agree that he's only stayed with exactly one theme or anything, but he has a thematic line through his career is certainly true. And, but is that, a, I don't know, is that an admirable thing or is that an unadmirable thing? I'm personally a little on the fence about it, but one more piece of contextual information here is that he was kind of going through a midlife or mid career kind of crisis. And this was exacerbated by the fact that And you know Bruce Springsteen's famous because even the members of his band are famous. So we've already mentioned Max Weinberg, but the other guy that was in his band was Steve Van Sant, a.k.a. Little Steven, a.k.a. the guy from The Sopranos. I can't think of his name right now. (laughs) Was he Pauly? No. Silvio, right? Silvio? Wasn't Silvio the guy with the... Ah, Yeah, Pauly's the other guy. Pauly's the other guy. Yeah, right, Silvio. I want Sopranos in a while. (laughs) Anyway, they were best friends since they were teenagers. They were in this kind of thing from the start and he had just left the band basically to have his own band. And so I think Bruce was in this uh, extremely both confused and like reflective mode. And he's kind of Steven, little Steven Van Sant is kind of in and out on this record because it was, as I alluded to earlier, it was kind of recorded at two different uh, sessions over the course of a couple of years. He was in the earlier session, but wasn't in the later session. But anyway, some of the songwriting is even kind of about their friendship. That song, No Surrender, is supposed to be about them and their kind of breakup as a friendship. So I just have a feeling that he was particularly feeling reflective of those of his old friends and of like his teenage times at this moment. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm just picturing him, you know, getting more and more famous and still recording songs like Darlington County. <laughs> <laughs> with like different lyrics about how rich he is. <laughs> Screw you guys, I got a Ferrari. Don't buy my own groceries and I don't have a mortgage. <laughs> Bruce, what happened to you, man? You changed, uh, dude. So that wraps up all the songs that we wanted to talk about. I think we can round this out with a quick vote. Bruce Springsteen's hugely successful album, Born in the USA. Is it a must listen before you die? I'll throw it to Tom. God damn it, I don't know. I, I'm really having a hard time on this one. There's a couple of different criteria that I will use, which is like, yeah, you haven't been living under a rock. So you've heard these songs before. Um, are the songs that you haven't heard good enough to make it worth listening to the entirety of the album? I don't think so on this one. Like A lot of the non-hit singles uh, were not my favorites, but there were still some really good ones that weren't singles. Ah, yeah, I'm going to go with yes. I'm going to go with yes, you should listen to it. It's 46 minutes of Bruce. It's not that bad. Excelente. Adam. Well, I did have a hard time getting through this, uh, you know, on Listen 15 or something. I needed a palate cleanser. I went with squeezes, tempted by the fruit, before we jumped onto this call, just as a palate cleanser. 
you should probably hear this, Rob. I do like what the what you pointed out, the subversiveness, the ultimate boosh of an album for <laughs> for rural Bible Belt America. And uh, yeah, it, it's a cool glimpse into the taking those 80 songs that you had talked about from that prior session and kind of honing it down. So yeah, give it a listen. I'm, I'm glad I did on the 4th of July here. Awesome. Happy America Day, guys. Yes. Well, I feel like we brought it home. Maybe I convinced somebody of something in this world and I could die happy. You son of a bitch. You should have been a lawyer, dude. <laughs> you know what? To be honest, oh, I was, I, I am also conflicted though. And I don't, I try not to use the same criteria as Tom of, you've clearly heard these, you know, the, the songs are all worth hearing, but I'm slightly influenced by the fact that you've almost certainly heard a lot of them before. But what I heard a lot on this call was, I never heard it that way. I never dove deep. I never gave it a closer listen. I never listened to the lyrics. So I think with that in mind, absolutely, it's a yes. It's good pop. It's feel-good pop music. It's well-crafted pop music, in my opinion. And just the impact it's had on the culture alone means that it's worth listening to and i think this is something we didn't quite touch on but i wrote as a note that one of the other potential criticisms here would be it's cliche handling of the death of the working class but it's like the death of american industry is an overused political stump speech trope but it doesn't mean it's not actually a tragedy right and that people aren't it's not reasonable to make art about it right so Sure, sure. For me, Bruce Springsteen does mean a lot. Like I said, this is not my top pick. It's probably not even in my top four. I like 70s Springsteen quite a bit better. And he did go through phases of his life as any artist could and should. But certainly I was that teenager or preteen even dreaming about escaping the gravity of my small town (laughs) because there had to be something else out there. And this, you know, that was me. And this meant something to me. And I think Dance in the Dark really was the one that kind of brought me into that because it got such play on it, it was literally the first video he made and it got a lot of play on mtv at that time so so there we are okay cool all that remain uh, springsteen baby you're on the list finally the working class accolades from these working class <laughs> delawareans right across the bridge right. <laughs> none Rainy. of whom live in delaware or our hometown anymore <laughs> right <laughs> all got pretty damn far away from it <laughs> definitely have opinions about new jersey as a state Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Bruce. Sorry, Bruce. Let's. All we have left to do is decide what we're going to be listening to next week. We're going to kick it over to Tom for the old Albinator. All right, everybody. Happy America Day. I'm going to go shoot something after this. I hope you all will too. <laughs> <laughs> next week, we will be listening to Drum shoot your mouth Roll, off. please. <laughs> System of a Down by System of a Down. Mm. All right. I'm sensing uh, trepidation on the part of (laughs) Rob and myself. I'm a little scared. (laughs) Not on the part of Adam, oddly enough. Okay. (laughs) Wake up. Jumper, 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 jumper. Yeah, but that's not on this album, right? I don't. Is this their? Which album is this? I gotta imagine it's their first. Like who? who? No, it's called System of a Down. System yeah, of a Down. I'm pretty familiar with the. Uh, they had like a double album set that they released. God, when I was playing, so in like 2002, 2003, we listened to that in the the band van incessantly for about three months. But I'm not super familiar with uh, their <laughs> their early stuff. I don't even know how many albums they have. <laughs> Yeah, is this debut? I don't. I don't really know what's going on uh, with this okay. one, but uh, 
I, this is gonna I, be it's pretty fresh for me adam's yeah. little impression there is about what i have in my head but the truth is i've barely heard a note of their music so i i'll reserve judgment till i hear it all i know is the self-righteous suicide <laughs> i have a feeling there's gonna be it. time changes which i'm down with maybe it's gonna be calming right really <laughs> just it's gonna be a really calming week yeah. i would assume Oh, are they all marked as explicit? I, I assume I can't listen to this in front of my family. Mm. I don't. I don't think you need curse words to make it unpalatable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one of the songs is called Cubert. Uh, that's going to be a weird one. Okay, like the game. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, we look forward to that, dear listener. Now you have your homework for the week. Listen along with us to System of a Down's eponymous album. We'll. Look forward to talking about that next week. If you want to shoot us over an email, the email address is 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. And please continue to pass this along. We're doing great with word of mouth, so pass it on to a friend. Leave us a quick review or shoot us over an email. We love you for it. For now, uh, we're going to close the show. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. And I'm Adam. Aboosh. If you're just dancing in the bush.